welcome to Q Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas. And we are your hosts for Q Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not the typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. For our 12th episode of Q Talks, we're welcoming Jim McDougall, who is the commercial director of Outfield Technologies, an agri-tech startup working with drone, satellite and weather data to support farmers. It will be great to hear more about the agri-tech industry and Outfield's experiences so far. Jim, thank you very much for coming on the show with us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to join the uh, the group of very high-profile people you've had so far. Thank you. The likes of Tom Simmons and uh, Bruno Corsa and all the rest of them. So yes, thank you very much. <laughs> if you wouldn't mind starting off telling us a bit about your background and how you ended up at Outfield today. Love to, yeah. So my training originally is as a mechanical engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that led me into oil and gas doing risk assessment, which is largely helping people to not blow themselves up and then they ignore you. Um, but that risk background took me towards private equity and uh, particularly environmental risk assessments. So if you're buying farmland, is it next to a chemical facility? Mm-hmm. And same the other way around. If you're buying a chemical facility, is it next to farms? And over the time that I was doing that, Firstly, I realized that I didn't like private equity very much um, for various reasons. And partly I realized that there's a huge delta between what people do in farms and in agriculture and what technology is available in the world. Now, the things that we all already know, the increase of desertification, population is going to be you know, 12 billion by 2050. We need to increase food, but also we've got pressures on the environment and we've got pressures on what we can produce. Mm-hmm. And so this need for you know, providing agricultural technology solutions is mm-hmm. kind of where, where I started to look. Now, my co-founder, Ollie, he used to design, uh, he's an aeronautical engineer, he used to design aircraft uh, for marshals. And so he's got skills very similar to the sort of uh, aerial imagery things that we do now. Mm-hmm. And we put our heads together and realized that there's a real perfect confluence of our skill sets here around sort of trying to manage environmental impacts and improve food security, as well as, you know, increasing yields and all this good stuff uh, using technology. So that's kind of where we, uh, where we came from. Great. So if we could, if you could just introduce a bit more about Outfield, what you guys do, and maybe in the wider context of agri-tech. For sure, yeah. So Outfield started out as an aerial imagery consultancy service. So we were exploring the sector and working with people like NIAB and working with larger states around East Anglia, providing aerial imagery and finding uses for that data, trying to improve the precision and the data available to these, uh, to these farmers. And what we realized over the time that we were working was the, um, the high value crops, the things that have got you know, 15, 20,000 pounds a hectare, like apples, which is where we're really focused now, is where this data can really be applied. Because you can work on sort of a, um, a crop level basis, you know, a tree by tree basis, and it's worth making interventions at that level. So that's where this data is really useful. So what we've been doing is using uh, aerial imagery systems, uh, drone systems, and then AI and machine learning um, vision systems to do things like count the number of blossoms that are on the trees in the field. Mm -hmm. Now, that's just one example of the things we do. But the reason that's so important is because the number of blossoms relates to the number of apples you get on the tree. Mm 
Too many blossoms results in too many very small apples, and too few is too few very large apples. These are completely useless to farmers, but they don't have the precision to be able to interact on a tree-level basis, so they blanket spray the whole orchard. And by doing so, they knock off all of the small, smaller trees, all the worst trees, and bring the numbers down for the larger trees to get what they need. Now, what we can do is we can give them a tree-by-tree -tree analysis, which allows them to do precision spraying or sending teams to do precision uh, picking and thinning, uh, maximizing their yields and also reducing the amount of spray they apply. Mm. This is really uh, fantastic stuff. And we've got a big Innovate UK project going at the moment, working with fantastic partners like uh, Worldwide Fruit, Niab, Hutchinson's, and some sprayer companies, uh, Nick Seymour, uh, who's building a precision sprayer to go with this. But what we realized was from all the other work we've done with, uh, with Niab over the last few years, there's many other techniques that we already had in that pocket, which work very well in orchards. So things like doing very coarse plant health analysis uh, to try and identify where there's water stress throughout the year mm -hmm. or catch diseases early. Uh, this is something that uh, is probably a very common story in agriculture, but you, your agronomist, your horticulturist will walk one row out of 400 when trying to look for diseases in orchards. That's, I mean, they do amazing things from, uh, from that very limited data point, but they just can't see the whole orchard. And there's so much that they know that they miss. Mm. So if we can give them a bit of direction, like a CT scanner, say this bit's unhealthy, go and look at it. They can be your doctor and they can go in and have a, you know, a detailed look and really diagnose that, make a prescription before it gets out of hand, before it becomes a problem. Uh, the other things we've also been looking at are uh, in this time of the season, counting the number of apples on the trees. Mm -hmm. So this sounds like something that's very simple, although it's a very difficult problem to solve because you've got to get a good view to be able to see the apples. And what's important is the size and the count of apples trying to estimate yields. Now, again, this sounds like something that should be possible, but if you've got two and a half thousand trees per hectare and you've got 150 hectares, there's no way of making a good prediction. Our orchard owners make three predictions throughout the year, uh, early in the season at blossom stage, and this is when the apples get sold. They're being sold by marketers into Waitrose before they even exist. Mm. And so by making better yield predictions, we can improve their market penetration. We can help them to uh, maximize their outputs. And they care more about getting that yield estimate right than they do about improving the yields. So this is where you know, this technology really is starting to turn heads. And I think we found a real silver bullet that can really help our, uh, help our customers. That's so interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history maybe of Acritech? Because I can imagine that some of our listeners are, are not that familiar with with technology and agriculture in the, in the same sentence. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, funnily enough, I recently did a lecture on this at the business school, and uh, I think it's an absolutely fascinating topic because for me, really, agriculture is what makes civilization. Mm. Before we had agriculture, this uh, our entire society was just people knocking around in forests and you know eating berries and killing things. Um, what we did about 40,000 years ago in Mesopotamia is humans got together and started cultivating crops in a controlled manner. Now, this actually reduced people's nutrition and made people less happy and less healthy. So why did we do it? Well, it meant that nine people could make enough calories to feed 10 people. And suddenly that was a huge game changer for our entire culture, our entire species, because that one person is now free to do something else. And this is the same trend that we've been following ever since 40,000 years ago. Now only about 3% of the world is involved directly in agricultural production. 
freeing everybody up to do things like record podcasts or design <laughs> drone systems. Um, this is uh, this for us is really sort of what we're trying to track at the moment. Uh, I think we're coming up quite soon at a time when there's going to be very little people involved in the sort of necessity chain uh, for you know, making food and getting out to people, which is very exciting. And it's something that uh, we want to be in front of. Mm. There was a quote from a man called Warren Bennis, where he said, the farm of the future will only have two employees, a man and a dog. The man will be there to feed the dog and the dog will be there to stop the man from touching the equipment. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's quite appropriate for what we're seeing in the agri-tech space. So agritech is a word that hasn't been around for very long and it's mm -hmm. become very prevalent over the last decade because historically agriculture has not been a sector that's been very tech focused. Mm -hmm. There have been a few leaps forward in tech for, for sure and things like um, precision farming, uh, which is very exciting where people are using you know, harvesting and tractor systems that have got inbuilt GPS systems, very good stuff. But there's so much more that we have technology available for as a species that we really should be applying here. Mm -hmm. Now, in the last sort of four or five years, we've seen a boom in investment in agritech. Mm -hmm. And it's become something that, just my opinion, but every VC seems to want on their portfolio an agritech company because there's been some real surging in this space. And we think that's really exciting. And I think a lot of the reason for that is the stresses we were talking about earlier, the you know, increased desertification, the in increased need for food and the uh, you know, reduced ability to produce it. So mm. it's, uh, it's almost a no-brainer because we've got to find solutions to this as a species. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're going to be in real trouble. Mm. Um, famine is kind of going up again, which is, uh, is a real shame because it's the first time it's been happening for you know, centuries. Um, now, I think personally, we have to work together to make that happen. And there are definitely, as is always true, some companies that want to be the be-all and the end-all. They want to you know, solve the whole problem, and I commend that. But I actually think we've got to work together because agriculture is such a complex space. Uh, everything is integrated, everything's tied together, and the factors that influence your yields are really complicated. You know, Things like, was there hail earlier in the year? Was there a, a brief period of cold because if there was your blossoms died off you've got less what was your yield like last year because you've stressed the soil now and the soils and the you know the sunlight penetration where you are in the world uh, who you've got to harvest what sprays you're using and all these things are just very unpredictable mm -hmm. so we need to be able to use things like aerial sensing equipment but also on the ground sensing equipment so yeah using it using an amalgamation of different technologies i think is absolutely critical it's also good business sense because other people will be finding this uh, same solution that we have. But if we're already integrated with ground sensors, if we're already integrated with you know, satellite data, if we're already using the, the best uh, data platforms, then it's much harder to oust all four technologies at once. Mm -hmm. So that Thomas and I were talking about this earlier when we were discussing technology in agriculture. We were saying that um, at the moment, there seems to still be quite a lot of um, human capital that is used in the agriculture process um, because of, like you're saying, the uncertainty um, that exists and also the sort of intricacies. So in terms of picking fruit and things like that, mm. being able to actually visually see that fruit and having the right sort of picking strength and whatever you want to call it. So how do you think technology can address some of those key challenges in being able to apply it in agriculture? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so that, I think, is a really pertinent point. And la labor costs in things like orchards are 40 to 50% of the total cost of producing fruit. Mm. It's unbelievably high. 
uh, and it's getting harder in the UK to find especially seasonal labor. Mm. Now, that's true across the world because people just aren't interested in being fruit pickers anymore. Uh, there's a labor shortage coming up, uh, both in skilled labor and in, uh, in seasonal labor, where things like uh, pruning a tree is a really skilled job. It takes years to learn how to do that well. Hmm. Um, but people who are doing it are now in their 50s and 60s and they're probably heading on fairly soon. So it's a hard job and you know, retiring is a, a very uh, a prospect that seems very appealing. So what, uh, what I think we're going to need is firstly ways of getting better data to support the existing labor force to do more with less. Um, just straight off the shelf data allows you to have your labor force for less time. If you can predict when you need them to harvest, you don't have them sitting around waiting for the right day. If you can track the actions that they're taking and maximize their efficiency, that's a really good place to start. And that's the sort of thing that we can start doing this year, next year, really easily. Beyond that, the next obvious one is involving robotic systems. And this is something that I think a lot of really exciting companies here in the UK and elsewhere are looking at. A uh, small robot company, I don't know if you're familiar with them, I'm just going to plug them. They've got amazing infield uh, robotic systems, more focused on arable, but very, very cool stuff. Now, what we've started by focusing on is uh, precision dosing systems, uh, precision spraying systems, which allow you to target small areas and reduce the labor force you need to do things like hand thinning of blossoms. Mm -hmm. But there's all sorts of other things you can do. There are harvesting robots that we've seen, uh, which they can only harvest about 30% of the crop, so they need to be followed by a lot of labor, but not as much labor as if they weren't there. Uh, these kind of systems are coming on leaps and bounds, and I think we're less than 10 years away from being able to do the majority of harvest better than we can do it with labor now using robotic systems. Mm. Some things are very hard to do with robotics, though. Mm -hmm. Some things re rely on uh, a very... In intelligent perspective, which is quite hard to train systems to do. Mm. Things like pruning. Before harvest, you thin the trees out to maximize the light getting to the apples. That's a really hard thing to know how to do. It's not something you can just turn up and learn. So uh, training robots to do that is going to be tough. And I think there will, for a long time, be a place for people in the, uh, in the orchard space. Mm -hmm. So you seem to indicate that there's a lot of potential in applying technology to the agricultural industry. Yeah. If you are a tech entrepreneur and you would like to get into this space, mm. what would be your advice? That's a, that's a really tricky one. So I think one of the more interesting sides of agritech is we were saying earlier that there's a big difference between what's done on the ground and what's possible. Right. And a lot of the technology isn't that innovative in itself. Mm -hmm. um, things like, uh, for us, drone systems are pretty robust now. They're more or less off the shelf. Mm -hmm. um, the machine vision systems we're using are fairly cutting edge, but again, there's a lot known about that problem, and you know, a lot of solutions are already there. Mm -hmm. 3D imagery is something that's fairly new again, but um, because of things like uh, self-driving cars, again, very, very well covered. But combining those things together with knowledge about the plants that you're looking at mm -hmm. and the plant scientists who are quite hard to come by, that's when you suddenly have a confluence of something that can really be valuable. Mm -hmm. So the important thing, I think, for any tech-orientated entrepreneurs is to make sure they understand the market, which is true with all things, mm -hmm. but also that they can find the people who can support them on the plant sciences side. Uh, we got really lucky that we got embedded with uh, NIAB here in Cambridge quite early, so we've got access to the world-leading plant scientists. Mm -hmm. But finding people like that's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, that's where I think just off-the-shelf tech, it's got to be useful. It's got to have uh, you know, a relevance and it's got to affect people's bottom line or they're not going to care. Uh, 
there definitely was a spate about five years ago of a lot of people buying, especially drones um, and sort of drone startups fire, firing up, particularly looking at arable crops. But I think what everyone realized quite early on is that it's very hard to do anything useful with that data. And so a lot of those companies have either fizzled out or moved on to other things. Mm. Um, so for someone who's looking into this space, it's really important to start from the ground up to understand what this data is going to be used for, what the problems are that you're solving. Now, I know that's true in every industry, but I think mm. it's especially true in agriculture because there's a big separation between sort of the understanding of tech, tech people and the understanding of agricultural people. And how receptive are kind of the agricultural companies to uh, kind of tech startups? Absolutely. Uh, it depends a lot on which sector you're looking at. Um, a lot of the big estates, especially here in the UK, but elsewhere, got kind of bitten by the tech bug back in the 90s. People mm -hmm. started making big promises that they couldn't follow through on. And I think something similar happened with drone startups here again, sort of in the you know, 2010 and onwards. Um, so people are skeptical. Now, that's a good thing, because mm. I don't think we should be spending money on technology for no reason. Uh, it's got to really affect your bottom line. It's got to be practical and implementable. Um, but there are definitely sectors where people are more tech aware um, and have more free capital to spend. Mm -hmm. So again, if you're looking at the, um, the horticultural crops, that's where, as opposed to being run like you'd imagine a farm is, they run much more like a horizontal factory. Mm -hmm. It's very data orientated, it's very data managed. And there they can see the benefit of using these new techniques. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to get onto their ground and show them what's valuable as well, because mm -hmm. a, a quick trial and suddenly, you know, imaginations light up. So that's, uh, that's certainly what we've seen. Is that reflective of some of the challenges that Outfield has had in the last few years? Or have you faced other sort of key challenges? Uh, that certainly is one of them, yeah. Um, trying to get in early with uh, farmers, especially big estate managers, they have, I think the phrase is uh, deep pockets and short arms. You know, they they have money, but they don't want to spend it. And that's uh, that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, so that was always a, always a bit of a challenge. Um, but there, are, there certainly have been a lot of challenges around, along the way. Um, finding good talent is always very, very tricky, um, mm -hmm. especially in this sector because agritech until very recently wasn't very sexy for want of a better word. Mm. Um, if you're trying to do AI systems or if you're trying to do self-driving cars, everyone's already heard the buzz about it. Whereas agritech, if you say, you know, oh, we're gonna be doing apples, everyone just thinks, oh, all right. <laughs> uh, and you have to spend a bit of time explaining, you know, how cool the machine vision systems are and the drone systems and you know, the front end platform and all this good stuff. Um, so yeah, fi finding reliable and solid talent, especially as a startup is always hard. And um, there are always people who want to be in startups um, who are probably quite, they're, they're not very risk averse, they're not very sort of focused because they want to have the excitement and the, you know, the buzz of a startup. And actually, that's not really what you're looking for, because you need people who you can rely on who are, you know, intelligent and effective. So mm. that's uh, something we're working on at the moment. And if anyone listening is interested in working for Outfield, please do get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's certainly one of the challenges that we faced. Um, there have been a lot of technological hurdles along the way. Um, but I think for us, the biggest challenge really was finding product market fit. Um, mm. To explain to anyone who's not familiar with that is really finding a product that people definitely need for a price that they can definitely afford. Uh, and someone told me once it's a bit like falling in love. Like when you find product market fit, you know. Mm. Uh, for a long time, we were kind of thinking, oh, have we have we found it? Do, do we know what we're doing? Uh, and then when we found the orchard space, we knew because everyone we spoke to about it said, oh, wow, we need that. 
that's that's a fantastic product. If you get it to here, I'll pay for that. And people are willing to put their hands in their pockets readily to get what we're doing. So that's uh, yeah, that's definitely one of the hardest bits. Just exploring the space, understanding the customers, and uh, finding finding the product that really works. Mm. I think that's been really fascinating to hear more about the agri-tech industry. Yeah. Um, but for us, it's also fascinating to learn more about the journey you have had as part of the startup. Mm. Uh, so I think you have been doing this now for about three and a half years. Yeah. And I think you mentioned um, in the conversation we had before that you have had some perspective shifts in the last yeah. three and a half years. And so I think I would really like to pick up on this comment and maybe you can talk a little bit about how your perspective has changed on topics such as funding, yeah. team building, and, and maybe other things you'd like to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Um, I suppose a good place to start on that is that when we were coming into this business, I had experience as a consultant and I had experience in private equity. And those have some similarities to running a startup, mm -hmm. but there's an awful lot that you just can't know without trying it. Mm -hmm. Now, we were quite early on working in the business school uh, on their Accelerate Cambridge program, which is fantastic. And it gives a really good education into entrepreneurship. But a lot of what they tell you you don't really understand until you find it. Um, so occasionally you find yourself having aha moments where you think, oh, that's what they meant. Oh, I see. <laughs> uh, which is, uh, is is always part of the challenge. Running a startup is, I mean, it's our first one, both Ollie and myself. And it's always, uh, it's always a journey of discovery sort of in terms of what's required to run a business and what the important things are. Mm. And um, that, that's certainly been really interesting. When we started out, I think like a lot of startups, um, we thought, felt that a big part of the objective of the first couple of years was to bring in some funding. Mm -hmm. And that perspective, I think, is very common in new you know, venture, venture uh, founders. But we realized early on that actually it's completely the other way around, mm -hmm. uh, that the funding is only the fuel in the tank, but you need the vehicle and you need the direction that you're heading in before it's worth putting that fuel anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, so we had a good perspective shift on that. We spent a while, you know, trying to make a product for, for investment and actually it doesn't matter. We're going to make a product for our clients. We're going to make a product that works, that's commercializable. And then the funding is just how you accelerate that. It's, it's, it's a tool in the box, but it's not the objective of the company. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that would be a piece of advice I'd give to anyone who's in an early stage venture. Um, good advice. Also, I mean, if we, whilst we're on good advice, I haven't been doing this very long. The best bit of advice I ever got given was... Um, make sure you know personally your lines of affordable loss in terms of how much you can spend on the company, but also in terms of how much of your time and how much of the patience of your peers and your spouse, if you have one, that you're willing to spend on this company. Um, because if you don't know where those lines are, you spend a lot of your time worrying, should I be doing this? Am I doing the right thing? When should I pull out of this? Mm. And I see a lot of early founders worrying about that and spending time that they should be spending on their business thinking about these things. Mm. If you have the line in your mind, you know when to pull out, that's it. It makes life much, much easier. And that's been really valuable for both Ollie and myself. So, yeah. Um, team building? Team building, yeah. Um, we're, still, uh, we're still working this one out as we go along. Uh, we have had some, uh, some full starts with team building, as I think most founders have. Uh, so we brought a guy in very early on, and he was fantastic for helping us set up the uh, technical aspects of the business. And we quite hoped that he'd fill a CTO role. Uh, and a really good guy as well. He was a, a sort of a family friend, so you know, nice guy to work with. But we realized as we worked with him for about six months that he didn't really want to be a director. He didn't really want to be a founder. Uh, so that was a real education that there's things that we had to know about people 
and we had to try people out at which weren't just their technical skills. Uh, and running a business is, uh, yeah, it's, you, you've got to be able to spread over a very wide spectrum and be happy to do things that you've never tried before. I spend quite a lot of my time saying, well, I don't know how to do this, but there's nobody else here, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> you mm -hmm. teach yourself to be an accountant or you teach yourself to be a, you know, an employer or whatever it is. So, yeah, good fun. Um, that is the joy of the company as well as one of the hardest bits. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, that certainly changed how we look at uh, employment and we try and do sort of trial periods with people now so we can spend a bit of time partly so that we can understand what they're like and mm -hmm. so that we can find out how they fit with the company, but also so they can understand what we're like and if that's where they want to be. So there's no pressure to say, you know, you're now betrothed to be here. Mm -hmm. You can just try it out for a bit. We've also moved much more to using contractors. Um, that's partly because we've got a lot of grant funding, which has uh, been specifically aimed at contractors. So for example, we have two guys down in London at the moment who are building our front end. Um, and they're both on contract because that's just the way the grant was set up. But it's a very useful way for us to work with people because we can spend some time with them. They actually are absolutely excellent. And we'd like to spend some more time with them afterwards. But if it doesn't work out, that's okay. It's just a contract. You know, we can write it off afterwards, so it's fine. Uh, so that's been, uh, that's been a very useful change of perspective as well. Great. You mentioned earlier about the product market fit. Mm. Um, maybe you could talk a bit more about your journey to finding that and if you had a specific process or if not, in hindsight, how would you go about doing that? Absolutely. Um, before I start this, what I will say is I think like everyone, it's much easier to say in hindsight what our process was and whether or not that's exactly true for what we did, I'm not sure. But the process that we were following was to start with exploration. So we weren't really trying to move into an exploitation phase, which is where we are now, where we're trying to sort of you know get to market at scale with a real product. We started out by just trying to make enough money to keep our heads above water mm. and spend as much time working with different people in the industry as possible. Um, so in terms of sort of exploring the market, we just tried to get in front of everybody. We tried to you know develop our systems, especially working in plant sciences with Naya. We got mm -hmm. to try all sorts of fascinating things that they'd never done before either. Working with Naya, we got to try all sorts of exciting plant science things, which we could then take out to the market and see which ones stuck with, you know, with real clients. Mm. Um, and we tried different sectors. I suppose a big eye-opener for us was realizing how segmented the agricultural market is, that uh, almost every single crop's got a completely different industry built around it. You know, a top fruit is a sector that covers you know, all orchard crops, but within that, there's a whole section of people who just are devoted to cherries. There's a whole section of people just devoted to apples. Citrus is completely different. And vineyards is a different story again. Um, so for us, it, was, it really was a matter of just spending as much time with different people, trying different techniques, seeing what people were willing to pay for, following the money. Uh, and then also very usefully, we had uh, access to some of the MBA students at the business school and the enterprise tech projects which are run there. And that brought in undergrads and postgrads to do uh, market assessments for us. So once we got to a point where we had, you know, half a dozen customers or at least half a dozen good contacts who were willing to talk, we could then, you know, set up students to talk to them. We found that people were much more open talking to students when they, you know, know that they're not trying to sell them anything. And we, uh, we found that through doing that, they were fantastically useful projects because we either managed to put in grant applications off the back of them with that sort of commercial credibility attached. And we knew that it was a good 
you know, market to pursue. Mm. Or in a couple of cases, we managed to write off markets knowing that they either weren't big enough or that we could never find, you know, the right fit there. Mm. Uh, so that was uh, that was really useful. And I think that, that's been very, very helpful for us because we didn't spend a lot of time trying to build a scalable product in a sector that didn't work. Yeah. And now that we found something that really does fit and we know that the metrics are sound, now we can start building, which is mm. great. So, yeah. You were also a, a mentor at a recent uh, Venture Creation Weekend on the theme of food security. That's right, yeah. And what were some of the common mistakes that you saw were being made by potential early-stage founders? There's a... A mantra change that I've had uh, since we started this, which is that ideas are not as valuable as implementation. Mm -hmm. I used to think that with the right idea, a startup would really go miles. But actually, I think that the three of us could go to the pub for an hour and come up with 10 perfectly plausible venture ideas. It's how you implement them that's important. And there's a lot of things that have to be sort of tied up in that. Uh, which if you aren't familiar with them and if you haven't been down, down that road before, you just don't know to think of. The concept and the technical aspects are at most half the battle. Hmm. Knowing that it can be done is only half of it. You have to know who's going to pay for it and what the costs attached to it are going to be and how big that market's going to be. And it has to be credible and realistic. And I think that's probably the thing that we saw the most when mentoring very early companies, uh, especially for a weekend like this, because people are just sort of having a bit of fun with it as well. But trying to get people to be really brutally critical of their thinking. When someone comes to you and says, we think we can corner 10% of the market. Okay, mm. why? <laughs> really like challenging yourself about those, uh, those metrics. And those are the kind of things that I think are very hard for founders to do. You have to be very thick-skinned and also very brutal with yourself. So those are, those are the kind of very common mistakes we saw. It's, it's knowing what are the important things to look out for. And obviously that changes a bit with every company, but some are very common. Um, And I think it's arriving at the answers that you see in things like pitch decks mm -hmm. by doing the work mm. as opposed to arriving at those answers because you need an answer, right? Put, putting in the thought and the background and the understanding. Those are, those are the really important things um, for me anyway. Mm -hmm. Great. This has been really interesting. Maybe to end on one final question. Um, what has been the one thing that has really surprised you about the agri-tech industry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think... For me, I, I knew some farmers, but I'd never worked with them before. I knew a bit about sort of, you know, who farmers were and what they did. But something that I hadn't really realized is how shrewd far farmers are. They negotiate for a living. And they may not have a good tech background, but they certainly are stupid. Uh, so that, for me, was a, a bit of an eye-opener. Like, don't play poker with farmers. They, <laughs> they absolutely take you to the cleaners. <laughs> Um, so that yeah, that was uh, that was definitely for me a big eye opener. Um, how business orientated these uh, these guys are, because it is at the end of the day, it's just a big business and it's one of the biggest businesses in the world, and that's why we want to be part of it. Mm. Interesting. Thank you so much for no, sharing your you. thoughts, Tim. Amazing. Cheers. Thank you very much for having me on, guys. It's been Thanks a pleasure. for coming on the show with us. Cheers. It was great to hear from Jim today and I thought it was particularly interesting what he was say saying about funding mm -hmm. um, and how a lot of founders start off creating a product that's attractive for investment rather than um, a, rather than attractive for, for the client. And I thought that was an interesting perspective shift that he had and I think quite an important lesson for founders. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. And for me, it was interesting to learn more about the Acritech industry. Mm. I can I can imagine many people don't really associate agriculture and technology mm. with each other so much. And 
Um, I found it interesting to learn more about how the industry is evolving. Now, Jim foresees quite a technified future in this space. Whether that will happen remains to be seen, but it's certainly an interesting industry to uh, innovate in. Definitely, yeah. Thanks very much again to Jim for joining us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV, and we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who have been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening, and please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.